lots of money, I got lots of time. Bought myself a penthouse, filled it up with bubbly wine. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week's guest is the guy behind this wonderful track right here, Calling All Girls. It's the great Hilly Michaels. So Hilly's career goes back a long ways. Back when he was a teenager in New York, he was best buddies with Michael Bolton, of all people. And they started out in a band together called Joy, back in the early days. Of course, Michael went one way, Hilly went another, and Hilly eventually became really tight friends with Mick Ronson, of all people, one of my favorite guitarists ever. And so that pairing got him into playing with a lot of other really interesting people like Ian Hunter and Ellen Foley and even John Cougar, which we talk about in here. That got him into the band Sparks. So he was in Sparks for a little while in the 70s. That got him into the Dan Hartman band, which regular listeners know how much I love Dan Hartman. He eventually put out a couple of solo albums in the early 80s. The first... Calling All Girls, Stone Cold Classic, one of the best power pop albums ever. In fact, the video for Calling All Girls, a little bit of trivia, was I believe the 94th video ever played on MTV. It was part of that first 24 hours. He put out a second album, way more experimental, really good, more interesting, called Lumia, and then that was pretty much it. He's still a really great man. In fact, in the mid-80s, he was going out with Marianne Faithful. We talk about that in here. We talk about having a song on the Caddyshack soundtrack. He's a good man. Now, I gotta fill you in. Like last week, I've been hanging on to this one for a while, too. We originally talked last June, uh, and it was one of the most enjoyable, entertaining, fun, spontaneous conversations I've had with anyone ever. And of course, it didn't record. I don't know why. That's the one and only time this has happened. I think every podcaster has a horror story like that. Mine is Hilly's, unfortunately. So we tried it again a couple of weeks later. Now, I got to tell you, Hilly's health isn't the best. And unfortunately, on that second time, we tried to recreate the magic. We did pretty well. We got close. His health was noticeably off a little bit. And afterwards, he asked me not to run it. So I didn't. We decided to take a break. We would try again a third time a couple of months ago. And that one, that one was even worse, unfortunately. So eventually, Hilly gave me the green light to run the second interview that we did. That's the one you're going to hear here. So there are some things that were in the third, that weren't in the second, or in the first. I tried to keep it all straight. This is a really fun conversation. I love Hilly a lot. And every sp- spot in his career deserves its own podcast, basically. He's done it all. I hope you enjoy this. I love the man. He called me from his home in Connecticut. Okay, well, Hilly, I really love having discovered you. And the way that I did it was, I've mentioned this before because it was a very impactful moment in my life, but on the 25th anniversary of MTV, here we are celebrating the 35th anniversary of MTV, but at the 25th anniversary on VH1 Classic, they re-aired the first 24 hours of MTV as it was shown at the time. 
and I oh. got completely transfixed by this. I watched all 24 hours. It was full of these bands that I had never heard of before, never heard from since. Where did these people go? It's where the germ of the idea that became this podcast was really born because I just thought, I want to know what these, these people were a part of history and where are they now? And Calling All Girls was the 94th video ever played on MTV. I loved it, and I have been curious about you ever since. And so I've been doing a lot of research to prepare for our conversation. Okay, so I want to let's go from the beginning. As I understand it, you grew up and were buddies with Michael Bolton as a kid. And you guys decided, you both took a liking to music, and you decided, let's go out to L.A. and see what we can make of ourselves. Am I sort of right here? Yeah. Yeah, uh, you're you're spot on, John. Right on the money. Wow, that was uh, quite a build-up. I didn't know <laughs> all that information. You were giving. You made wow. an impact, Billy. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you are right. I grew up with uh, with the likes of uh, people like Michael Bolton, and we had a core group of musicians here in New Haven. And uh, Michael uh, had various incarnations of bands as he began singing professionally. I think he signed his first uh, recording contract. I was still in high school, and I remember going over to the rehearsal and were playing Michael's newest record on Epic Mm. Records, a 45. So he was recording at a really young age. When he was 14, Michael kind of sounded like cross between uh, Tom Jones and Janis Joplin. <laughs> oh, wow. At 14. So he knew. I mean, you know, he takes a lot of flack today because he's of this adult contemporary genre and everything. But even the people who aren't into his music have to know that he's got an amazing voice. You saw his awakening to that voice as a teenager, right? Yes. Exactly. That's kind of amazing. You're 14 when you realize you have this gift. What do I do with this gift? I recognize that I can sing like a few other people. I know. Wouldn't it be great if we I all know. had a gift like that? I know. It's amazing. He kind of set a really high bar for me in terms of singers during my career. But uh, to begin with, uh, Michael was quite a treat. Mm-hmm. And right, right around the time... We were like 19, 20, turning 20. We had made these uh, deal-making demos with uh, acoustic guitars, one electric, bongos. I think I was playing bongos. Anyway, Mm -hmm. they made their way to a production company, which made its way to a record company. We went out to California. These core players, Boba, Selwitz, Friedland, and uh, we we cut a record out there mm-hmm. and, uh, at Sound City, no less. Yeah, yeah the one and only. The famous, forget about infamous. And uh, yeah. remember, the first day we were walking into Sound City, Dr. John was walking out. <laughs> oh, man. His name has <laughs> come up a lot on here, actually. You guys a rock band? Yeah. yeah. What do you call uh We're called Joy. Ain't that a dishwashing detergent? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we kind of looked at 
one another and went, oh, well, we just met Dr. John. Yeah, now we're here. We've arrived. So we did the record. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were. Is that with, uh, music out there somewhere? I mean, is this Joy album? Is it? How would you even? Mm-hmm. Is it on YouTube someplace? I think it's going to be. Oh, <laughs> how do I put this? Uh oh. A snowflake's chance in <laughs> hell that you're ever gonna hear any oh, of this music, no. even though I know who's got it. And uh, where it is, and how great it is too, which is uh, a shame because it's yeah. so great, so oh, man. and soulful, and uh, it's great, John. Oh, it's too bad. I think you were describing it before as like acid pop, which is, uh, you know, yeah. again going back, it's crazy to think, but this is where Michael Bolton started out with the acid pop, yeah, and then he started blackjack and became the hard rock guy. Tried all these things until Balladeer finally took off, you know? Yeah. Were you guys friendly along the way? Have you stayed in touch, or did you guys kind of lose touch as he started to sort of blow up? We kind of saw less and less of one another during the 80s. Our pads would cross at rehearsal rooms in New York. He'd be with a band, and I'd be rehearsing for a record or rehearsing for a tour, you know, we'd peek into each other's uh, rehearsal rooms and see, okay, mm-hmm. what's he up to now, what's he up to now, and uh, we we kind of uh, didn't see one another for a long, long time throughout the, the, the 80s mm-hmm. and part of the 90s, but uh, we were certainly well aware of each other and what we were both doing. Okay, we well, that's a, cool. We did have a, a reunion gig in 2000 at a friend of ours. Really? And uh, a birthday, 50th birthday party. Michael showed up, and we wanted him to do the acid pop, but he wouldn't do the acid pop. Really? He would get up and, and sing a, uh, a blues song with us. Okay, okay. Not really good. Okay. So you come to L.A., and you guys are going to try and make it happen, and Joy doesn't really get off the ground. Now, the first credit that I can see on your allmusic.com page is, crazily enough, John Cougar and his very first album. But when we talked before, you mentioned that your first actual paid gig was working with a Christian artist, right? That's right. Larry Norman from... The, the legendary pop band, The People. They had okay. a top ten record with I Love You, which is really cool. Yes, I do, but the words won't come. And I don't know what to say. I should tell you, I love you, I do. The words should explain, but the words won't come. I shouldn't hide my love deep inside. The words should explain, but the words won't come. I should tell you just how I feel, and I keep trying. But something holds me back when I try to tell you.
How does he pick you? How did you, did the Holy Spirit tell him to pick you? How did he decide Hilly Michaels needed to be his drummer? John, it's it's almost like a dream. I think uh, Fred and Glenn were walking down Hollywood Boulevard. I was in Venice, and uh, we would occasionally take trips to uh, Hollywood for fun. And I think Glenn and Fred bumped into Larry Norman somehow, and they got to talking. I think Fred and Glenn told me that they had bumped into him, and... He's looking for a backup band. He wants to do this double bootleg uh, Christian album. And uh, we moved to Hollywood. We 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 ended up uh, uh, staying with the uh, engineer uh, mm. at his t- uh, home, Roger Dollarhide, and we we did this uh, bootleg Christian rock pop, very 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 rough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very rough. I can't remember what it's called. Upon this rock, or Larry Norman double live double bootleg, or something like that. I did that. Yeah. Okay. And that's your first taste of, like, you know, not success so much as just making a living as a musician. I'm guessing you moved to LA and you're barely scraping by for a while. And then this yeah. job comes along, and you're able right. to pay your bills for a little while. And that's really the beginning of it all, right? Yes, correct. That's amazing. That's that's how it began. That's crazy. Okay, so you go from there to John Cougar's first album, which I I'd never, you know, his first, like, he was around forever before he actually broke through, and... Most of those albums are really obscure and hard to find. And how did you? Well, how did you? Everything I played on is obscure. Well, kind of, yes, yes. But I'm here to tell most people that there's a lot of diamonds in that rough. There's some really great stuff there that I want to talk more about. Yes. So, um, so, but we gotta, we, we, I gotta know how you get picked to be on John Cougar's first album. I should say it's called the Chestnut Street Incident. Well, I've lived and breathed and been Disbelieved in these small town streets too long I've held nothing but aces And been many places And hung on the corner till dawn But my hands, they have been tied To a life I've been denied I'm just a small town boy being used like a toy and working at night. Understand, ah, but I work it out every day for no fun, very little pay. I'm just a small town boy being used like a toy and doing what other people say. Well, yeah, yeah, and I played on his first record, two different versions. 
of uh, the title track, a slow one and a fast one. And I, I'm hanging around with Mick Bronson, and uh, we're trying to begin a rock band and look for players. And it's going on almost a year, and there's a knock on the door, and John Cougar and his uh, bass player, guitar player, walk in, and they're talking about Mick playing on John's solo record in a couple of days. And uh, does Mick know of any drummers? And so Mick points over at me and he says, well, my drummer, Hilly. And Cougar uh, looks over at me and he goes, yeah, you any good? <laughs> I said, I, what a John Cougar good. thing to say, right? Yeah, he, he was, was kind of like a, a punk James Dean or something, a real firecracker. We did uh, the session, and uh, so many amazing people were there. I was so nervous. I went out after I tuned my drums and got a sound. I was shaking so bad. Mm. Michael Kamen on the piano. Oh, yeah. Bonson tuning his guitar without a guitar tuner. And the engineer insisting that he plug into this strobe tuner three times in a row. And Ron says, I don't need a bloody tuner. And he takes his guitar and just to appease the engineer, he plugs it in the strobe tuner. I never saw this in my life. I've, I've seen him tune one uh-huh. thing, another, and wait for all the strobes to line up. Ronson hits this like open E, and he pins all the wheels, and he says, there, are you happy? I'm in tune. <laughs> so, nice. There's all these other, you know, you know, it's new, it's fresh. There's I went out to a package store, and I buy a bottle of wine, and I had to have a couple glasses of wine. I was so really? Mad. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. Okay, well, this begs a couple of big questions. Number one, how did you become friends with Mick Ronson, of all people? And then some people may think that having Mick Ronson on a John Cougar album is also kind of out of nowhere. But that that relationship, did that come from Tony DeFreeze? Because Tony DeFreeze, who had managed David Bowie during the Spiders from Mars period when Mick was playing with him, also went on to sort of discover John Cougar, correct? Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah. The free. So Tony is thinking, let's yeah. get, I know a guy, the great, one of the greatest guitarists ever, Mick Ronson. Right. He'll come play on your album. Now, how, so how did you become friends with Mick Ronson? He, he actually came to uh, New Haven, and uh, it was 1976. And uh, I had already played with Sparks. No, I take that back. Yeah, I was going to say, I think Sparks is afterwards. I take that way back. (laughs) 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 Nick? Okay, 1973. I returned from Larry Norman and Peach and Lee and and doing the Michael Bolton album that no one's ever going to hear. And... I go over to Michael's, and he's rehearsing for a second RCA release as Michael Bolotin. Right. And uh, Ronson comes over from New York, 
invited by Patrick Henderson, who was uh, Michael's musical arranger, who Michael met on the road when he was mm. opening up Leon Russell a year before. Mick uh, is checking out Michael because Mick knew Patrick. Oh, it's so incestuous. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and I can tell. Trying to keep it all together. So he came to one of our live shows. We played on some floating barge, and uh, Mick was there with his wife. And I, I just remember saying, oh, my God, here is the guy whose billboard I used to walk by <laughs> every day with a tear rolling down from his eye <laughs> and the most amazing guitar style in the world and the platinum spider himself. Yes. And the guy is sitting there, and... I swear he had like like this aura about him, he, like uh, angelic, heavenly, yeah, sweet, and such a great guy, such a friendly guy, and so he checked us out, and then through Patrick, I got to play with Cherry Vanilla, and then okay. he came backstage after we we were after a performance and commented about my makeup and saying I had way too much makeup on that even he never wore that much makeup with Bowie. <laughs> oh, and right. I said, but Mick, I have no say in the matter. It's Cherry's makeup artist, Tina Farina, right. whatever. Uh, he was cracking up. and We, we became friends. And uh, After cool. Cherry, I got together with Mick and we hit it off. We, we were like, like best friends in a week. It's <laughs> like amazing. It's amazing. I, and I how long have you guys know each other? I mean, you know, becoming friends with like a musical rock hero. That's I know. I know. Just I know. It was amazing. It was amazing. I said, and how long did you remain crazy. friends with him? Oh, I don't know, fifteen years. Oh, okay. So it went on for a while. Oh, that's oh, yeah. great. Nice. Yeah. So yes. Uh, He's the man. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man, what a loss. What a yeah, loss. Yeah, no kidding. Prayers to, to Mick. Yeah. So, uh, through Mick, as you could imagine, uh, I met a myriad of yeah. players. And, yeah. Uh, now, one thing real quick. you got to tell me about John Cooper again. I mean, yeah. It sounds like the personality that we know today, which is kind of the yeah. grumpy, you know, piss and vinegar type, angry guy, that he was like that even as a, you, he was probably 19 years old when you yeah. met him? Yeah, shiny jet black hair and black leather and <laughs> uh, being, you know, piss and vinegar. Kind yeah. Of he Crazy. Was, he, he was a bit. Uh, what's the word? I don't know. I couldn't believe how 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 he was uh, talking to Ronson. I, I oh couldn't believe God. the tone he was talking to me. I said, "Man, these guys yeah. must really know one another." Like, has got balls. F you and F me and F everybody. And, oh man. I don't know. You know, he okay. was. Uh, he is who he is, and yeah. Uh, you know, he definitely, you know, had nothing but, you know, maximum respect. Sure. Good. Okay. Because uh, it was, you know, it was six or seven years before, after, until he finally caught on after that with 
Hurt So Good and Jack and Diane. I think that was 82, 83. playing guitar on that. What's that? That is Ronson playing those huge metal acoustic. On Jack uh, and Diane? Yeah. I'm no way. Sure. I'm really? pretty sure. We're playing a gig and, and uh, with Hunter Ronson and Mick's being interviewed, and I hear him talking about playing on Jack and Diane. I said, when did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> when did you do that? Well, he, he slipped off, and rumor has it that, I said, is that you playing guitar? And uh, I'm assuming from my memory that that is Mick Ronson playing. Wow. Down, 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 down. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. one of the best songs ever. Okay, I'm looking this up. Let's see here. Oh, doesn't say. Not on all music, anyway. Also, look it, it up. Kind of that is nuts. It was very hush-hush, as I recall. Huh. Wow. Boy, okay, that's good info. Okay, so we um, so from John Cougar, Sparks now comes into the picture. That's right. really your first big thing. You're touring the oh, world. Yeah. You're being treated like a rock star, rock star, you know, treatment. What? How does Sparks happen? From what I understand, they were like your favorite band at the time, and then they, they were, picked they you were, out of the blue. They were so theatrical and goofy and funny and musically, you know, apt, you know, correct, you know, in my mind. I was brought up on... on uh, uh, musicals here in uh, New Haven at the Schubert okay. Theater. You know, Bye Bye Birdie, Hello Dolly. I saw them all. You know, my parents used to drag me to these things. <laughs> you know, right. the came out. But Sparks had like this, uh, this uh, kind of like uh, quiche, if that's mm-hmm. the word, Broadway thing about them. Kitsch, I don't know, yeah. Very theatrical, and I, right. I really, I really mm-hmm. like that about them. Okay. I admired them. I had all their records. I, I used to uh, think to myself, man, why can't I play for a, a freaking cool band like that? <laughs> when am I going to get the call to be in a band like that? That's right. the kind of band I want to be in. <laughs> and sitting around with Nick again, knock at the door, knock on the door. Hey, Ronson, it's a Sparks guy, somebody shouts. And in they walk, same routine. 
Well, why don't you use my drummer? I mean, uh-huh. <laughs> his name is Billy. I think right. Right. We go down to a rehearsal room in this uh, loft, and uh, we bashed out Big Beat under the guidance of uh, Rano, and mm-hmm. he set a template, and everyone had their tape recorders on, and that was the, the template we used for uh, Big Beat. Wow. But they, they wanted him to produce and join the band. And yeah. he wouldn't join the band. So they said, well, we can't have you play with us if you don't yeah. join the band because no one in the world plays. Right. <laughs> exactly. Who else is going to pretend to be Mick Ronson out on the road? Yeah. So they called me up and they said, join the band. We want you to, you know, we're calling the record band Big B and we want you to be a drummer and yes. a girl tearing your clothes off. And I said, I don't know if I could do that. I'm, I'm you know, morally contracted to, uh, uh, contracted uh, to Mick Ronson. It was funny, uh, one of their reps trying to uh, seduce me into the band. Well, if you don't want 6,000 girls staring off, you know, your shirt, you know, if you don't want all this money, if you don't want, you know, screaming yeah. teenage girls, go play with Mick Ronson. Yeah, you'll okay, be yeah. for 20 years. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> but I had faith in Mick Ronson, and Mick was still number one uh, in my book, in my yeah. world. And uh, so uh, I poised or posed the predicament to him, and he just looked at me and he said, "Hilly, join Sparks. Go, go do it. You haven't nice. done anything, you know, uh, you know, super note. You yeah. know, go do it. My blessings. Do it. Yeah. When you're done, give me a call. Nice. So that's how that happened. But now, when you when you get this call from Sparks, you think you're joining the band. You don't. You're not coming in to." Just play the drums. You're coming in to be a member of Sparks, and you, right? And you play Stinky Diamond. Yeah. Yes. Have and you play on big beat. Sparks. Right. And then you go out on tour, but then that's yeah. It. They decide to kind of start all over again, fresh, new album, new <laughs> band. Man. Yeah. Now, one question I have. Uh, we talked about this before, but I'm going to reiterate it again anyway, just okay. because. So. I uh, I grew up Mormon, and I had read that Mick Ronson grew up Mormon as well, and a lot of my friends are still Mormon and everything. So did you ever, this may seem like a really weird question, but did you ever get any indication, did he ever mention anything about that to you, or did it ever come up? Or Because uh, I highly doubt that he remained Mormon, but I wondered if it ever came up or anything like that. Do you even know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do know what you're talking about, and because you mentioned it before and you're mentioning it again, it makes absolute sense. And now I could draw some some unconnected dots and figure out why Mick was so salt of the earth and so polite and such a gentleman and a respectful person and why everyone really loved that guy sincerely. And Good. I think it had something to do with his Mormon roots. Probably. It's probably another reason why I enjoy talking with you a lot and get on with you, John. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, we we do our best to kind of be those salt of the earth type people, but <laughs> not all. Yeah, yeah, but not many of us, you know, make it to rock godhood. So I just think that's a really interesting dichotomy that 
one of the greatest guitarists ever, grew up Mormon, you know, in England, of all places, you know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Okay. It makes sense. Now. Okay. And by the way, if you know of any Mormon farmers in Utah that need help, <laughs> give them my number. Really? You want to move to Utah and be a farmer? I'll move to Utah and be a Mormon. <laughs> yeah. It's time to kamikaze onto something else. Oh, that's right. I forgot about the kamikaze. That was the right. theme kamikaze. from when we talked about before. Yes. Okay. <laughs> now, I should establish so that we can kind of take it from here. When you and I yeah. spoke before, this theme in your life of approaching life as a, from a, as a kamikaze, being willing to yeah. sort of take wild left or right turns at any given time and sort of get into experience and, you know, not always following a plan, more being open to whatever comes your way, that has been a sort of guiding force or a guiding philosophy for you in your life, right? Yes. I loved and love the rush of making a sharp right or a sharp left or doing something that you don't know that that looks and sounds so adventurous mm-hmm. and as long as you're safe physically safe yeah. then I'd say go for it yeah. that's what I've done and I got myself into the weirdest kind of uh, situations <laughs> in the world because I just said okay yeah. I'll, I'll hang out with this uh, tornado storm, this uh, weather front for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, you becoming a Mormon would be, uh, you could add that to your list of the weirdest, strangest experiences you would probably ever have. That is hilarious. <laughs> That'd be great. Wow. Oh, That'd man. Great. Okay, good. Well, I, I had forgotten that we talked a lot about that before, so I want to make sure that I mentioned it here because I think that colors who you are as a person and why, you know, you've had so many crazy, cool experiences in your life is the kamikaze approach. So, okay. Yeah. Yep. So yep. Sparks, after Sparks, now we got to talk about Dan Hartman. Dan oh, Hartman yeah. is one of my favorite songwriters of all time. I love him so much. I, that's Talk about another death that is just gone too soon and it's I so know. sad they're not here. He's one of those people. I love him so much. You've got to tell me about Dan Hartman. Okay. Okay. After uh, Sparks, I, I came back to New Haven. I had nothing to do. Nothing to do. <laughs> From Big B. Nothing to do. Well, if I had a million thumbs, I'd twiddle. But I just have two. Nothing to do. There you are. Live performance. There you go. It's an exclusive. I love it. (laughs) Somebody says, hey, you know, Dan Hartman lives in Westport where all the the wealthy people live, about 45 minutes from New Haven. So on a whim, I picked up the phone and I asked information like a a real idiot thinking that, yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm going to get through all the gatekeepers by (laughs) dialing 411. Can I, uh, name and number, please? Uh, name, please? Yes. Uh, can I have the number of uh, the very uh, uh, talented, rich, and famous uh, Dan Hartman? 
says, yes, uh, that number is 88-5555. I said, do you have any other Dan Hartman? Well, I have a Daniel Hartman who's a, a doctor. No, no. Okay, I'll try this one. And I call, and this little voice goes, hello. I was expecting... Hello, now this is Dan now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this little voice goes, hello? I go, yeah, Dan Hartman, please. And he says, this, this is Dan. I said, Dan Hartman, I'm sorry. Dan Hartman, the musician. He said, yeah, this is Dan Hartman, the musician. How can I help you? And I was tongue-tied. I didn't know uh-huh. what to say. And then I said, this is Dan Hartman from the Edgar Winter Band, the Free Ride, Dan uh-huh. Hartman. And I told him who I was, what I had done. And he said, Sparks is my favorite band in the world. you got to come oh, over. Man. we got to talk. I want to I wanna start a pop band. And I'm looking oh. for players. Same thing like with yeah. Nick Bronson. Yeah. So I went over to meet him, and I ended up, Hanging out with Dan, put, trying to put a band together, moved into his, you know, 48-room mansion, haunted oh, mansion, and <laughs> we were trying to look for band members for a great rock band. His house was haunted. It was so haunted that it was off the chain haunted. <laughs> that somebody would, like, run across the floorboards above what? us, pop light bulbs. And Dan told us that somebody did, this This kid did die in the house, and the Jamaican maid said, oh, yeah, there's a ghost there. And they, they, they no. And the noises. And, and when Dan would leave me alone, he would start up and run around and just make noises. Uh-huh. I would call Mick Ronson in New York <laughs> and say, Mick, hold my hand. What do I do? <laughs> And he said, he'll get the fuck out of that house. What are you doing? <laughs> Run to the train station. <laughs> oh, I love it. So Dan Hartman, of all people, is just scaring you to death. That is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He lived in a in a true blue haunted house. Crazy. One night he left, and in walks Linda Blair running towards me. What? Linda Blair. No. Liter- the Linda literal Blair. actress, Linda Blair, from the yeah. The actress in what, what what movie is it? The Exorcist. The Exorcist, yeah. Who, yeah. That movie made me not sleep for about three months. Oh, of course. It's the scariest so movie of all there. time. Yeah, I'm sitting there. Dan's gone. It's about ten o'clock, and Linda Blair comes running through these corridors towards me in this white flowing dress, and I'm about peeing my pants, and she gets up in my face, and she says, Hi, are you Hilly? I'm Linda Blair. Dan said that you're here all alone, and Liz Barringer told me that. Liz, look, it's Hilly. What? Really? I was petrified. I don't don't even remember what happened after that, but I I know that I was in a haunted house. Wow. (laughs) Linda Blair runs up to me. That is insane. Linda Blair, uh, oh my gosh. You wow. have to be there, I guess. No, that's so weird, though. I mean, because she was in the nightgown in the movie, and you see her running up to you in a white dress, and this is for real. 
This is I not know, some Dan, hallucination. Dan was, playing, Dan was playing matchmaker. Oh, he, he was said, trying to fix you up with Linda Blair. Wow, good <laughs> yeah. for you, Hilly. Linda yeah. Blair was hot. Yeah. Nice. Good for you, man. <laughs> now, speaking of fixing up, I mean, so sadly and tragically, Dan died of AIDS. He was not, to my knowledge, out or anything like that while he was alive. Was he, um, you know, it's such a hot topic now with homosexuality and everything. Was he closeted to you? Did you know the real man? I didn't know know for a year and a half. Really? Yeah. Okay. He put put on, uh, well, he was uh, stuck in the middle. Yeah. You know, and, Would uh, he go out with girls to try and kind of keep up appearance? Do you think he was confused himself? He talk about this is his old girlfriend that broke okay. his heart. Uh-huh. And uh, I just, yeah, we were in love with, our girlfriends were our instruments back then. Yeah. And neither one yeah. of us were like going to clubs trying to pick up girls. Okay. So it, it wasn't anything to be suspicious of. And when okay. he used to go out at night, I, I'd say to myself, oh, man, he's probably, you know, <laughs> having an orgy with, like, 20 beautiful girls or something. Sure, sure. But one day I asked him about something, and he just gives me this look, and he goes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I You, really? He goes, yeah. And I, we just laughed about it. And oh, said, oh, that was it. Whatever. Okay, good. Yeah, good. Okay. I've always wondered about that. I just, I I love him. And, you know, dying tragically of AIDS at a time when people weren't as forthcoming about their sexuality, I've always wondered, did he have to keep it a secret? Was he in pain? Did he, you know, or was he, did he manage to smile and well, be he happy? Fell it sounds like he was he a really nice, love, loving guy. He fell in love real big time. And he wrote Instant Replay. He wrote Instant Replay about someone he had fallen in love with? Yes. I loved him. Yeah. Okay, cool. So now you becoming a member of his band and yeah. uh, during the Instant Replay and Relight My Fire, goodness, Relight My Fire is one of my very favorite albums of all time. The band that he puts yeah, together right. is oh, so good. Is mm. you and him and G.E. Smith, who goes on to Saturday Night Live fame and the one and only Vinnie Vincent. So we got to right. know a little bit about... Now, first and foremost, i got to say one thing before I forget. I think I read somewhere that you guys did a massive tour of Europe, never once Lip- actually performing. You <laughs> lipstick right. the entire time. Is that right? We did about 50 to 75 TV shows, put on a ton of crazy makeup, 
and clowned around for three and a half minutes, three minutes, and just had all the moves down to instant replay and just kept doing it like two, three times a day for three months. It was wow. insane. Wow. Did you guys ever perform the song like in no. the same room together? <laughs> or was I think I don't think so. Oh my gosh, that's nuts. Because that's we did nuts. have a pop band and we used to play Calling All Girls in the pop uh-huh. band. We did like two or three gigs with G E playing guitar, electric guitar, Dan playing bass, G E I mean uh sorry, Vinny playing guitar me drumming, and we did Dan's uh, original pop tunes, and Dan included and sang Calling All Girls, because wow. he helped me finish uh, all my demos that eventually, you know, got me uh, over to Warner Brothers. Yeah. But, and then suddenly, after the second gig, something happened, and Dan recorded overnight, played all the instruments on instant replay, and said, hey, listen to this, guys. And then suddenly uh, his management booked us over in Europe for this three-month TV lip-sync tour. Then we came back, and for another three months, did TV shows over (laughs) here. It was like six months of lip-syncing instant replay. Of just lip-syncing instant replay over and over and over again. That is crazy. Believe it or not, I got a reputation as a good lip-syncing drummer. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not only can he play, he convincingly <laughs> lip-syncs on television. That is a talent that you just can't teach. This Hilly Michael's got it all, right? I know. Well, two things, two standout performances that we did here in America was American Bandstand with Dick Clark. And mm-hmm. he says, Dan, let's in- introduce the band. He goes, and he looks at me, and Dick Clark goes, holy cow, look at that. And I had the, these, these like, primary colors exploding from my wardrobe behind the drums. And Dick Clark is, like, going, wow, who is this? What do you call this, Dan? <laughs> and then uh, an- another standout lip-sync moment was... Uh, on Soul Train, when oh. uh, when we did Soul Train, and the very famous and talented MC of that show is introducing us one by one. That I couldn't believe we were on Soul Train. First of all, <laughs> no kidding, right? Yeah. So you know, we we did the American thing, and then I get a uh-huh. phone call from Liz Derringer, who is oh. Ann Hartman's friend. Okay, Rick Derringer's wife? Rick Derringer's wife, right. Okay, uh-huh. Good friends with Dan, hence uh, the uh, Linda Blair connection. She she arrived with Liz. Liz okay. brought her over to Dan, so they were very good friends. And uh, Liz calls me and she said, listen, a friend of mine who's married to Judy Garland's daughter, I'm thinking Liza Malley, and he's uh-huh. born a love. I said, oh, yeah, Lorna Luff, of course, yeah. Well, uh-huh. her husband is this huge pop star, Jake Hooker, and he had his own TV show in England, and he's managing Lorna, and he just signed uh, a new recording contract, and he needs 
a, a lip-syncing drummer for the Jerry <laughs> Lewis telethon. Oh, no way. It's all about you. <laughs> I know of a great lip-syncing drummer. Let's call Hilly Michaels. <laughs> yeah. I go over, I meet him, I say, well, gee, I can't do the uh, telethon with you. I, uh, I'm busy that day, but I hear that that you were on a big pop-in. You want to hear my demos? I just finished with Rupert Holmes and Dan Harmon and McLean, uh-huh. whatever. And he goes, oh, yeah, sure, I'd love to. And from the moment he heard of my demos, the tape, he flipped out and said, okay, I'm going to get you a worldwide record deal next week, tomorrow. Wow, I said, wow. I said, are you kidding me? He said, <laughs> I said, you just signed a, rec- a recording contract. And he said, well, I'll cancel it, and I'll devote my, my life to managing you and Lorna. He said, your, your stuff is absolutely unbelievable. I could get you a worldwide recording contract tomorrow. And I said, really? <laughs> and he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, we talked, and then he calls me up. Three days, four days later, he said, Hilly, I just signed you to Warner Brothers Worldwide. Jerry Wexler, Ahmed, uh, uh, this yeah. is Mo Austin. Wow. They all want to sign you. I said, I don't know if I want to do this. I'm playing with Hunter Ronson. And uh-huh. I'm having a really good time. So I put it on the back burner for a couple of months. And by that point, at that time, I was getting other recording offers, trying to top really? one. Yeah, oh, nice. Yeah, everyone else started throwing offers at me. And then record producers. And it all happened so quick. It seems like the moment I said goodbye to the band at the airport, the Hunter uh-huh. Ronson band, and I'll never forget, the last person I said goodbye to was Mick, and he said, Hilly, come back, come back. You could do you could do the next leg, easy. He said, this record company signing, you know, it's just, you know, it's just a bunch of nonsense. It's, you know, you're wasting your uh-huh. time. Come, come back and play with us. And wow. we just looked at one another, and I said, I'll try, Mick, I'll try. Yeah. And, it didn't happen that way, and oh. uh, I was really upset because I could have, as it turned out. I could have. Uh-huh. But you uh, got to chase your own label, album opportunity, right? Or do you – I mean, it's easy to say now because, uh, no offense, but neither of your albums were as successful as they should have been. But if they had been, you wouldn't be full of regrets. But do you think you would have been just as happy remaining Ian Hunter's drummer for no, never no not at all, all of a sudden, okay uh, good I, I realized that i could write really good pop you know yes. loony crazy supercharged pop songs yes <laughs> who knew yes yeah. yeah well the world needs calling all girls in it the whole <laughs> album because it's a here, here. piece of genius <laughs> pop okay it's Good. a great it's, album. It, it is perfection. It is so good. I know. Okay, I know. It's pop perfection, um, I guess. Yes, bubblegum. So, okay, i got to ask you about three more people before we go deep on your solo, okay? Uh-oh, so I want to yeah. know, first of all, we got to talk about Vinnie Vincent for a minute. Now, when we talked before, you didn't really know about some of the hardships that he's 
come up against the last few years, and it's uh, yeah, he's this enigma. There's all these first of all, so yeah, what's what's in the breeze? What's the wind thing? Well, you know, he joined Kiss, and we got to talk about Kiss too because you were invited to join Kiss twice. He was with Kiss, and it's sort of he sort of reignited their career, wrote some really great songs that put him back on the map but he was too much to deal with, and they kicked him out. And he's been sort of playing off of that ever since. He claims to have a bunch of, you know, recordings and a box set and a bootleg and signed things that he charges a ton of money for and because the Kiss Army is so devout, they pay yeah. top dollar for these things, and then they wow, never, wow. he never delivers them. So he's defaulted on a ton of that. He His wife died... Uh, a few years ago, I think of alcoholism, and he there was some domestic violence there. I've heard from I people heard that he. I heard about that. It was yes. televised, actually. Yeah, and I've heard that he. I mean, he might be a crossdresser or a transvestite at this point. I heard that too. I heard it yeah. too. So there's a lot of. Uh, he. No one knows where he is. Um, <laughs> he's all these all this trouble with the law, you know. But you, when we talked before, you were saying that you didn't necessarily see any of that in him back in the day, but that Dan had sort of cobbled together you, Vinny, and GE as his quote-unquote band because he liked you guys, because you all were friends, and there was a good kind of camaraderie or chemistry there. But that Vinny still, even then, his sense of humor and his personality was such that he was just still sort of on the margin of that friendship, right? I'll be really, really honest. As I recall, he was amongst the four of us. He was kind of like the odd man out. You know, it's something, there wasn't like this unbelievable, like, connection. Yeah. And it kind of stopped at Vinny and then started back up after Vinny. We all loved him, you sure. know, as a musician, as a pal. But th- there was something going on with Vinny none of us really knew about. And we would remark about these eccentricities, we'll call mm-hmm. them, about Vinny from mm-hmm. time to time. And, and we we actually had some kind of adage like, oh, He's doing a Vinny, or mm. he's, he's Vinny being mode. Vinny, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Vince, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, he. he I, I, I really can't put my finger on it, but uh, uh, there was something, uh, something going on inside of Vinny that uh, was above and beyond uh, the, the general scope of you being able to uh, compartmentalize yeah. someone to, you know, an extent, if you're in the same band with them, you, you kind of should know who they are to an extent. But with Vinny, you never really quite knew. Oh, that's too bad. Well, but he was a talented musician. I mean, that was pretty apparent, right? Or I guess or else Dan would oh, yeah, yeah. have selected him. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, he was brilliant. Brilliant mm. guitar player. Great touch. If you want to make a little money, you might you you should go out there and see if you can track down Vinny somewhere. Um, that would be a huge <laughs> a exclusive. A musical bounty hunter. 
Yeah, yes. You and I should start the musical bounty hunter business. We'll go out there and we'll track down these people who no one can find. Yeah, the NBA. We'll be partners. NBA Inc. I love it. John and Hilly, to the rescue. We're going to find your lost rock star. I would love that. Oh, my gosh. That is so great. Okay, two more for you. Ian Hunter, You're Never Alone with a Schizophrenic. Amazing album. You play yeah. drums on this. No, uh, I did not. You did not? It no, says you that did. Is Max Weinberg. Okay. You're Never Alone with a Schizophrenic. As I recall, Ian hired the entire East Street band, Bob Bruce, and uh, he played the record. I think I was there when he played it for Mick, actually. It was powerful, powerfully good. It is. I didn't know it prior to researching you, but I immediately fell in love. It's incredible. But you don't play on it? No, I don't play it. I think Mick played me the record. I don't play wow. on it at all. Okay, okay. It also says you play on his All of the Good Ones Are Taken album. Do you do that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I do do that record. I said, girl, things ain't been going too good for me. I said, girl, I'm living in the middle of this mystery.
it got to a point where some of my uh, close friends were saying, why don't you just release the demo? The demos, like, are unbelievable. Really? You're trying to recreate magic with Roy Baker. Yeah. You're trying to duplicate something magical that happened, you know, a year or two ago when you recorded the demos, and you're trying to replicate them and reproduce yeah. them. And yeah. so I would have preferred a producer who was uh, a little bit more of a musician than Okay. Ron. Huh. And I'll leave it at that. Uh, okay. It's, it's just got a little uh, studio-ish form okay. at yeah. times. And yeah. some of the warmth kind of went over kind of, his head. Yeah, kind of polished like off. Said, okay. He did uh, what he thought was yeah. was and uh, I listen to it from time to time, and uh, always critical. <laughs> you shouldn't be though. Something I mean, excellent that he did. Oh, it's a it's a it's a gem. And I mean, you know, there was a there was a long period there where the term power pop was sort of a, considered a bad word, or not even a bad word, but it implied it described music that was secondary for whatever reason, even though bands like The Cars or Cheap Trick or these artists who made Power Pop what it was, The Knack, that kind of thing, uh, they're making what I think is like perfect music. You know, it's everything yeah. you want in a catchy three-minute tune. And But nowadays, that term is becoming, people are discovering that Power Pop music is, like the Holy Grail, and there's all these albums out there by artists that were ignored at the time, but that are yeah. getting these kind of audiences now. People kind of crate digging and finding them and discovering how great they are. Calling All Girls, I think, is one of those albums. You know, oh, that's great, dear. Well, that's what I hear from you know. I hear that it comes up a lot with you know the real true power pop collectors and lovers know that Calling All Girls is one of the hallmarks of the of the genre and of the era. I think it's really interesting that there are, you know, you can hear Ellen Foley clear as day in um, uh, Shake It and Dance. Liza Minnelli singing in uh, U.S. Mail. US, 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 
of all, I mean, just crazy, but you've, you've got the strangest group of people, most eclectic group of people working on your album, but it works. I know. It's like uh, the Maybe John Stone, Elton John's guitarist, is in there. It's crazy. The studio was like the Johnny Carson show or the Jay Leno show. <laughs> who, who was going to walk through the door next? Oh, uh, yes. Yes. Oh, here's the guy from the cars. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, I love it. All these all-stars. But now, okay, so we got to, you know, I've, uh, we talk about the money side of, of people's careers and uh, how they maintain and that kind of a thing. When we talked before, I think you had mentioned that Calling All Girls the single was never, it never really charted like in the top 40. It was sort of more of a piecemeal regional hit in spurts here and there because the video didn't air for another year after the album came out. So there was never like a big momentous, there wasn't a lot of momentum pushing it into the top 40. Is that right? Yeah, that's accurate and fair. Okay. Okay. And I didn't realize it until years ago when, when somebody wrote something and, uh, I read it and I said that my, my, uh, video, was a year prior to MTV. I said, mm. really? Yeah. I remember it coming out a couple of months. No, it was no. a year, Hilly. That's okay. crazy. Yeah, so that that might very well have had something to do with Warner Brothers' uh, promotion wheel coming to uh, a halt right around there. Yeah. Okay, calling all girls. Hilly's been out there his first debut album. It's been out mm-hmm. there for a year. The video's been out there. Okay, let's you know make sure MTV plays it, but mm-hmm. no radio stations are like playing the death out of any one song or the single yeah. release from it. It's a done deal. It did what it's going to do, and on to number two. Uh, Thank it's you. Crazy. <laughs> They didn't realize what they had. Do no, you even know, do you have an idea of how many copies that album sold? No. Okay. I wouldn't even venture to guess. Really? I'd probably be way off, either way under or way over. <laughs> yeah. Well, but now you had mentioned there was, it sounded like there was a little bit of a bidding war for your talents, though. There were Warner Brothers and a few other labels coming to you wanting to sign you. So I'm guessing that there was, you know, yeah. they, they seemed invested in making you a star and getting you out there, but then it just didn't happen or what? I mean, they, you know, they put a, someone like Roy Baker on there. Um, I know. They, they make a video. Had, There's got to be some plan. There was such a jibber-jabber about me, and, you know, in New York City especially, and this, this, uh, like hype and promo and people gossiping in the music circles. Haley Michaels, you know, Warner Brothers, is, is, you know, they've promised him a quintuplet platinum album. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I was, I, I kind of like got lost in that mm-hmm. after a while. And uh, I said, wow. You know, I just better do and listen to this incredible star-making record yeah. company, Warner Brothers, do everything they say, 
and do everything my manager tells me without question. Right. And consequently, because I didn't follow my gut on a lot of different issues, I would have probably been in KISS and had a hit record <laughs> with calling all girls at the same time. <laughs> yes. What would that have been like? My gosh, right? If I followed my gut and said, you know what, I'm going to do what I feel like doing. I would have been in KISS. Calling all girls would have been top ten. I'm mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So okay. So this is before we get to your second album. Let's let's address the Kiss issue here. So you were oh, right. Yeah. You were famously invited to join Kiss twice, right? Once in the late seventies, <laughs> I assume to take well, over for Peter Chris. Yes. Yes. When my record was was being manufactured, I, I was told that. I think my uh, Jake, my manager said, "Oh, by by the way, <laughs> by the way, Hilly, uh, Gene and Paul want you to join Kiss." I nearly jumped off the couch and hit my head on the ceiling. <laughs> I said, "Well, <laughs> when do I sign? Where do I yeah, do I do it?" Yeah. That you can't do it. He said, uh, "Peter, Chris is—they want you to replace Peter." And uh, they know you could write, they like your drumming, and you could sing, and they think you'd be a perfect match. Well, I want to do it, but you can't do it. I spoke with Warner Brothers. They will not allow it. And Roy Thomas Baker will not produce you if you have any intention of joining it. I mean, I may be exaggerating a bit, but the flow of negative reaction to the offer was so overwhelming that they beat it into my head that it's a bad oh. thing to release the record and join Kiss. And, oh, man. Uh, I was just, you know, really forced, bullied out of being mm-hmm. in Kiss. Uh, that uh, were working for me. <laughs> yeah, that's horrible. Oh, my gosh. But now we've, I had asked you this before. Do you, because you're, uh, those guys are great guys, but they, yeah. when they put the makeup on and they're the heavy, hard rock stars, because that was, you know, they were starting to, in, what was it, 83 with Vinny, they start going more into the hard rock area, 82, I guess, with Creatures of the Night. Um, do you think you would have wanted to play? Because it doesn't sound like that's the kind of musician you are naturally. I mean, that's not what Sparks is about or Dan Hartman or your solo stuff or um, Ellen Foley well, or any of these yeah. people, but you would have, you would have been a, been comfortable being that kind of a rock star. I would have taken a deep breath, tightened <laughs> my belt and said, and put on my pilot cap and go, let's go. Kamikaze. <laughs> Kamikaze time. That's right. Kamikaze with kiss. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Okay. And but then yeah. and then Gene, uh, now you told me this really great story about being in Jamaica with your wife or your girlfriend yeah. oh, on your honeymoon. Yes. And Gene calling you in Jamaica trying okay. to get you to come join again in around like 84, 85, 90. 90. Oh, 90. 89, 90. Okay. So what happened then? Somehow he tracked me down. 
uh-huh. and uh, I go to the the nearest phone. I was like way deep in uh, Negril, Jamaica, and I picked up the phone. He said, "Hilly, it's Gene Simmons." He said, "What the f are you doing in Jamaica?" <laughs> Don't tell me you're playing effing reggae music. Don't tell me you joined an effing reggae band. I love it. Because Paul and I uh, want you to come back and uh, uh, be with Kiss. Eric is very ill. Hospital. He's very sick. And uh, doesn't look good for Eric. And uh, it's kind of sad to hear. And then yeah. I'm looking at my, my fiance on my motor scooter who's calling me <laughs> to rush off and she she looked so so beautiful and uh-huh. the nine AM sun was hitting her, the golden light was hitting yes. her yes. and Jean's talking to me in my right ear and I hear my wife calling me, Come, come on, come on, let's go. So I tried to barter with uh for time with uh, uh, Gene, I said, I just kind of got here. I'm on a three-month honeymoon. Gene, mm-hmm. let's enjoy a month of it. He said, no. How about mm. a couple of weeks of it? He said, no. I said, how about the next week? No. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Ugh. He said, tomorrow or never. And I said, okay, thanks for calling. I'm really honored that you call me. I, it's just, uh, I just got married, and you don't know what I've been through uh, to end up married to this girl. Uh-huh. And the sacrifices I made to be with this girl was like kiss times ten. Uh-huh. If you could, if you know where I'm going with this, what I walked away from was, like, as Gene said to me on the phone, he said, look, why are you, like, hedging? Why are you humming and pawing mm-hmm. about this? Don't you understand, Haley? We're offering you the keys to the kingdom. Yeah. I'll never forget that. The keys, yeah. the keys to the kingdom. The keys to the kingdom. Right, right. And I, oh, you just I got married. Your head was in a different place. Yeah. It took me a year to end up with her and it spanned three continents and wild crazy adventures uh, to end up with her and I lost out on uh, a fortune during that time which is really personal but I kind of walked away from a couple of billion dollars (laughs) really by not joining KISS or in other ways too in other ways Oh, girl, I sacrificed being a billionaire so I could end up with this girl. And then after that, Gene says, well, you know, don't you want to make all this money? And I'm thinking about the money that I walked away from. And I would be able to make that money playing with Kiss a hundred times. And I was was just kind of tired. I didn't know if I was all geared up to, you know, put an inch of makeup on my face and go out yeah. there and play, uh, you know, yeah. hard, heavy metal in that Jamaica mode. Maybe Gene right. was right. I was in effing Jamaica, too. 
Maybe. If well, thinking correctly. Yeah. Uh, now, if we're talking the late '80s, you weren't really in music anymore, right? Ah, very good, Sherlock. I made a <laughs> promise to my wife in 1990 when we, I finally did get engaged and married to her. Okay. And uh, the first month, I used to uh, I brought her to America, and uh, I would go write music or produce work on a production, and she wouldn't see me for three to five hours, except yeah. for hi. Uh, I'm going to the bathroom. <laughs> right, right. Can't and one day she was crying her eyes out, and she said, Michael, uh, I never get to see you. You didn't t- tell me that. Once we were married, I never uh-huh. see you. And you're going to be in your music room. You know, the music is destroying us and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I thought to myself, well, I went through all this, the sacrifices I've made. I could sacrifice music. So I promised her that I would cease and desist from playing or composing music. I would walk away from it for as long as I possibly could. Uh And then lived off the fat of the land for about three or four years. Uh And uh, and then moved to Florida with her and wished I had never made that move. Yeah. And because I lost my constant, you know, out of touch, out of sight, out of mind, out of touch, out of mind. And for about five years, I wasn't in touch with the circle of people who I used to run with. Right. So it was hard getting back into music in 1995, uh, sorry, 1997, out in Orlando. Oh, boy, yeah. I couldn't even get a job being a lifeguard at a wave pool for Disney, for God's sake. You couldn't? Oh, man. But at one point, you're this rock star drummer. (laughs) Right? Just to prove a point to somebody who, who backed my adventure to Florida, I said, I could get a, a regular job as quick as any guy who goes out wants to get a job, and I'll prove it to you. So I went to Disney World. Oh. I, I want to run the music. I want to arrange the music. I want to write the music. I can. Not I want to. I could do this. I could do that. Uh-huh. Here's my resume. And this 23-year-old kid sits in his office, and he opens up this leather-bound, four-foot, like, Disney World book, and it flops open, and he has all his job opportunities, and he couldn't be older than 22 years old, a little blonde kid, and he (laughs) says, well, all the openings we have for you, uh, Hilly, is, uh, the only thing we have is being the lifeguard at a wave pool. Oh, no. Uh, attractions in Disney World. I said, a lifeguard? Well, I love to swim. I said, sure. I'll do it. Kamikaze. <laughs> Kamikaze. <laughs> so I used uh, my hotel pool that I was staying with Mary and doing these, like, 100 to 200 laps every day for about a oh, month. Oh, wow. 
So I built myself up to look like Tarzan, went back and got in the office with the kid. I said, okay, I'm ready. I could swim the length of a football field and back. I'm ready to be your your lifeguard. Oh, my gosh. He opens up up the big book and he said, Haley, something has changed since you, you were last year. Now you need to be Red Cross certified. And that's <laughs> when I put my foot down. Yeah, said, yeah. No, no, I'm not going to go get certified to be a Red Cross, you know, person and bring yeah from the dead. <laughs> that's where I draw the line. <laughs> oh, man. Come I can only give know. so much, right? Yeah, yeah right. Come on. <laughs> But it was a, Why are you going to keep making this hard? Adventure. So what but were you doing, right. though? Now, we t- you, would, you were a um, yeah, we uh, kind of a... Well, but, but you were, what were you doing with, like, the Detroit Opera and stuff like that? You were um, I was getting donations and stuff, right? Uh, donations, not so much donations. In fact, I only did one donation... Uh, campaign for nine months uh, for the uh, uh, Detroit Opera House. But I was doing marketing for subscriptions for the entire season for opera companies, symphony orchestras, and ballets across the country. I found out I was really good at hiring people to talk on the phone about music and you know, Seven eight hundred dollar box seats at the opera or the, the symphony or you know the best seats in the world because the yeah. talent was so great and I had a talent for conveying that love and passion for the fine arts and music in general to telemarketers that would call our patrons. Okay. Mhm. And I'd have these uh, marketing rooms at the opera or okay. at the Detroit Symphony or Cleveland Symphony or the Oregon Ballet. They they had uh, rooms built for, you know, to man the phones and call anywhere from 500 to three-quarters of a million of their previous patrons and talk them back into coming back to the opera, coming back to L.A., coming back to the musical theater, coming back to the symphony, and okay. I did that for seven years, and I burned okay. out on it. Wow, okay. Of manning rooms, and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, breathing life into the audience for the final, right. filling okay. up the venues, and it was a good, rewarding seven years, because I really uh, came up with some new marketing and development kind of things. Cool. Okay. For 20 to 30 people, you know, a day to use. On yeah. And have them press the button for, gee, I, you're right, I do love the opera, or you're right, I do love the symphony or the ballet, mm-hmm. and, yeah, sign me up. Okay. So I was in charge of uh, that uh, completely different world from pop music yeah. into the fine arts 
and, you know, dealing with the Kirov Ballet and the Bolshoi Ballet. Sure. <laughs> but is your heart there. still back in, you know, is your heart in your head still kind of, you know, pining away for pop music and rock stardom? Or have you kind of left all that behind? Are you comfortable in your new, more domesticated life? Yes, yes, I am. Okay. What I've decided to do is, and I made this decision about a month or two, right around the first time we spoke, uh, John, and I was in the studio recording new music, and I thought to myself, you know what? You don't want to be doing this anymore, Mm -hmm. okay? Uh, You're not running with the same people. Uh, You're not... uh, It's a totally different world out there. These home studios... Yeah. I couldn't convey my production ideas to musicians... I don't know if it's a generation thing, but I decided it wasn't working. I didn't like the the finished product. And instead, what I've decided to do is just release barrelfuls of unreleased music that Mm -hmm. I've come across from from my past. These golden lost and found nuggets of demos or sound bites that'll take people back to the early 70s in New York through the 80s and 90s. Yeah, I'm happy doing Good. absolutely nothing. I <laughs> prefer to be milking cows on a uh, farm. In Utah. <laughs> in Utah with the, uh, the Mormons. With the Mormons. That's yeah, a very kamikaze move. <laughs> I'd love to do that now. <laughs> <laughs> I have friends in Utah, tons of them. I'll call one of them and see if they need a new yeah. farm. I would hand. love to pack and leave. There you go. Perfect. It's time. That sounds great. Cool. Well, so but, right. so wait, are you um, you know, so you're the music that you're making, quote unquote, now is you're prettying up old recordings basically, kind of um re- reproducing them to sound better with the intention of releasing them, I guess? Digitizing them, mastering them a little, denoising them, and putting it on my music uh, Facebook page. Uh, Thomas Ferranti has done a superb job of maintaining for me over the past six years. He's done a bunch of uh, uh, videos for me. Super talented guy, Thomas Ferranti. He has his own music uh, page, okay. he's a musician, mm-hmm. and uh, he's quite good. He's quite diverse as an artist. So good. the plan is to give him to Thomas, and between the two of us, we'll brainstorm something and cool. release all this, uh, these uh, uh, sound bites uh, from uh, the 70s, 80s. Okay, 90s. cool. Because the one, like the only thing that's even out there for people to consume, because that's one thing I try to, I try to put out there for, because I I've talked to mostly kind of obscure artists, and so it's like, well, how do we support this artist financially? And the only bit of 
Hilly Michaels that's out there to buy, like on iTunes, is the Pop of This compilation that came out, I think, about 10 years ago or so. that sort of the same idea it's kind of a collection of sort of b-sides and demos and re-recorded not maybe not re-recording but um digitized versions of old songs is that what that was yeah yeah okay i that's when i quit the fine arts uh year number eight and i said why am i doing this somebody yeah. contacted me from norway a calling old girl fanatic band julie and she said, you ought to be releasing new music. So I called the studio in Connecticut. I was in Detroit. And I said, how would you like to do this with me? I'll go uh-huh. through a bag of about 5,000 tapes and cassettes and CDs, and we'll put a, a, a pre-recorded record out that's already been recorded. We'll, we'll cherry-pick all, all the best stuff. And uh, it took a a year to do, and uh, as it turns out, uh, I didn't find all the lost gems. I have a ton oh, left. And good. I'm not making money on Pop This. Right. Uh, uh, I'm not making money being a musician at all, except for the... Uh, uh, the quarterlies uh, I get from uh, Universal. There's okay. some uh, publishing uh, some songs uh, out there, but the main one is, of course, from Caddyshack. Yep, that's what I wanted to ask you about. So, um, something on your mind, right? Something's on your mind. Would you tell me? Something's on your mind. Would you tell me? Something's on your mind. Something's on your mind. Be the dreamer, all the boys, whoever you 
Yeah, it's it's hardly a, a yearly paycheck. <laughs> right. But that's uh, that's another thing that um, we talk about a lot, and I'm I'm always fascinated with people who have songs on movie soundtracks. Of course, Caddyshack is one of the most iconic movies ever. It's still watched all the time, generation after generation. It is one of those things, though, that even though it has the iconic Kenny Loggins, I'm all right, you know, hit, gigantic hit off of it, I don't yeah. remember the actual soundtrack album being a big deal or selling very much. So I'm guessing right. the royalties that you make off Caddyshack are from all the repeated viewings because it's yes. on TV like all the time, right? Yes, you're right. You're okay. right. So okay. let me do a shout out. Anyone interested in producing me and bankrolling <laughs> a new Calling of Girls record, I can't oh. do it. So give John a call and he'll give you the message. Yes. I'll be uh, I'll be your middleman. You guys come to me and we'll work out a way that we can all work with Hilly Michaels. There you go. Okay. So yeah, so that's so the way you make your living today is through um basically royalties from Things like Caddyshack, primarily, probably. That's probably the biggest royalty check you get. Um, any yeah, other uh, any other things out there? Not really. You know, uh, uh, I'm becoming too complacent uh, doing absolutely nothing in a, a nowhere kind of city that I don't belong in. And I've mm-hmm. been here about three years too long for a total of six. I should have been oh. out of here three, four years ago, but oh boy. I got stuck in New Haven, my hometown, and uh, I really hope that Mormon guy calls <laughs> me because I'm ready. <laughs> I, I'll I'm send ready the Mormon missionaries to your house. They will love that. Are you kidding? I'll send them over <laughs> to your house. You'll have to listen to all the Book of Mormon stuff and Joseph Smith. Yeah, you'll love it. Okay. All right. I'll make it happen. I know people. I know just who to call. Well, oh, that's would great. That be something else? What, what an addendum to my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? This crazy kamikaze story just keeps taking the widest twists and turns. You ending right. up a Mormon farmhand in Utah yeah. would just be yeah. the strangest of all. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I would enjoy that more than getting a third call from Kiss, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, their plan is that all the original members just continue to fade away, but they put the make, they smack the makeup on anyone and everyone who feels like playing, and it's the Kiss name that just keeps going on and on with no actual Oh, with Gene and Paul. Kiss. Yeah, without Gene yeah. and Paul. They oh, plan without? to retire. Yeah, they're going to retire but they're going to sort of bestow their makeup, their personas, on two other <laughs> rock stars. And the, those KISS guys can just, it's like a professional cover band that's it's sanctioned a, by Gene and Paul. Yeah. A KISS dynasty. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, whatever. I don't know who wants that, but anyway. I, don't I love know. KISS. I'm taking my kids to see KISS here in a couple of weeks, actually. Um, with Gene and okay. Paul, I hope. Yes, yes. One last right. time with Gene and Paul. We got to do it. So, cool. okay. I got to ask you one more thing. We got to talk briefly about Marianne Faithful, just because I think it's really interesting that you uh, were with one of the most famous music 
female rock icons of all time. I, we don't have to get too deep or personal or salacious by any means. But in the mid-'80s there for a little while, you and her were together, and this was post-Mick Jagger and post... This was actually during a really rough time in her life when she oh. was... Right? I mean, she had been oh. homeless and was... Um, uh, drug having a big drug problem. She went to rehab, I think, while you two were together. Yeah. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but was there? Were there? What was that period of your life like? Do you even dangerous. want to talk about it? You don't have to if you don't want to. Dangerous. Uh, dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Very yes. dangerous. It yeah. was like walking a tightrope with her, yeah. and she had some real wild sides to her but you know uh, I'm I'm not going to say anything negative about okay. Marianne Faithful and you know uh, when we met you know we locked eyes we knew something was going on and we got together and we lived together as a man and wife we were engaged mm-hmm. and wrote music wrote, wrote great music uh, uh, pop songs together. Went uh-huh. into the, the uh, recording studio and did an ill-fated shelved album. Mm, uh, interesting. And that happened over uh, uh, two years. And the album okay. came at the end of uh, the second year. And but we we really loved each other. Yeah. Was, you know, I guess it was like a love-hate kind of a thing. Right. Sometimes stand her and sometimes she couldn't stand me and yeah. but I I don't I can't count more than three or four times in in the amount of time we were together where we weren't in the same bedroom. Ah. Uh, hmm. So there well, was, was a, it a, Go ahead. No, there, there was a deep tender love yeah that that began the whole thing and you know, maybe I'm, you know, just like, you know, oblivious uh, to our relationships, but uh, it's purported that she was unhappy during our two years together, and, you know, uh, far be it for me. I thought, mm-hmm. I thought we were... Yeah. I, I thought we were... Things uh, were good. Yeah, things were really good. Yeah. And uh, uh, who knew? Who knew? I don't know. Yeah. You try to analyze Marianne Faithful. Good luck. <laughs> you know, she's happy. She's sad. Yeah. Right. This, she's that. She's yeah. a drama queen. And, you know. <laughs> yeah. You, can't you know, and that's got to be, too. Um, I mean, you know, we think Marianne Faithful, you're with the, one of the most beautiful women on earth at a who rocked stardom and everything like that. But this is a pretty ugly period of her life. She might just be associating you with an, a period of her life that she would prefer not to go back to. And so I you just have so. to take the brunt of that, you know? Yeah, I think you're right. That's a good armchair psych- psychiatric... Well, that's uh, what I'm here for, Hilly. I wish you well. I wish you well. We made yeah. some good music. And had some fun times, and yeah. uh, another kamikaze move. I knew it was trouble. I knew it yeah. was dangerous. 
real danger. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. That's nuts. I could write a few books about. I believe it. Those twenty months, whatever it was. Not to sound too insensitive, or but isn't it strange to think that you and Mick Jagger have had the same girlfriend? We. I was standing next to Mick Jagger talking to Marion. The three of us are standing there having met for the first time. And we had re- reunited. They had reunited, and I was with Marianne at the time at a studio in New York where we were tracking, and the Stones would come in to track. So I bumped into Jagger, and I'm standing there with Mick Jagger and uh, with Marianne, and oh my gosh. I'm looking at the two of them. What's yeah. going on here? This is, yeah. this is crazy. Wow. That is crazy. That is hey, a, that is crazy. He was very cordial, very polite. Good, good. And uh, very friendly to me. Good. Oh, that's crazy. Well, uh, Billy, I think I've, I've exhausted every little tidbit, tidbit of cool trivia that I can think of. I'm sure there's a million more. But I just want you to know how much I love you. I just think you're the greatest. And I'm so thankful wow, that you gave me I'm, some time. Thank you so much for quite talking a compliment. to me. Thank you very much. It, it, that means a lot because I know you're super well-versed and you're total music aficionado, aficionado. Yeah. I appreciate that and respect that. And it's, uh, I'm honored to be amongst the, the other people that you've had the pleasure wow. of talking with. It's been it's, fun. Uh... There you have it, Hilly Michaels. I love that guy. I, I wish I could go deep on every chapter of his career because there's so many interesting things and people he's worked with that I love. I could talk for hours about that stuff. Uh, unfortunately, those two albums of his are really hard to find. They're, I don't think they ever made it on CD. The only thing you can really get your hands on is that Pop This compilation that we talked about. It's available everywhere. It's really good. In fact, I wanted to close it out. Since we didn't talk about Lumia very much in this conversation, I wanted to close it out with my favorite song from that album. This is it. It's called Assembly Line. I love this song. All right. Next week, uh, regular listeners may remember that last fall, I had mentioned that our next guest was going to be someone who was tied to one of the unfortunate deaths that popular music experienced last year. At the last minute, that had to get scrapped, and uh, but it's coming out next week. And so I... Please come back next week. We have a very special guest that I'm excited to share with all of you. Very timely. Uh, If this is your first time, you can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send me a message on there if you want. If you want me to try and track down a favorite artist of yours. Uh, You can find us on iTunes and subscribe and write a review. You can send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my partner in crime. Thank you, Yan, for everything you do. We will see you guys next Tuesday with a very special guest. See you then.
Assemble the 